I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, Conversations on Catholic Faith and Culture. This is episode 27, which is called Distributism, the Third Way or a Wrong Way, and I'm uh, in conversation with Father Brad Elliott. Before I hand over to him, I just want to set the scene a little bit. Uh, Distributism is an economic and cultural ideology um, in which it is believed that private ownership should be widely distributed, uh, hence the name. Uh, So it should be distributed among the population um, according to the principle of subsidiarity. Now, that in itself is not problematic for me, uh, but when we get into, we dig a little deeper and get into the question of how we assess a just distribution and the means by which we achieve it, I do have reservations. Furthermore, distributists in general are ill at ease with the modern culture. Again, in this respect, I probably share the same dislike and I'm, and, um, I'm unhappy about many of the things that they're unhappy about. However, when, again, when I uh, probe a little further, uh, their critique seems to me to be flawed uh, when they discuss uh, the, the, what are the nature of those problems and how, therefore, how we might change it. And this critique is linked um, to their economic solutions and their, their economic proposals as well. The two are not unconnected. In regard to the culture, I feel that they tend to romanticize the past falsely. And I have to say, this is something, this is something coming from someone who has a pretty rosy picture of the past, as I do. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my discussions with Father Brad Elliott from the Western province of the Dominican order. Hello, this is episode 27 of the Way of Beauty podcast. Uh, I'm here with Father Brad Elliott, who is a Dominican of the Western province, uh, lives close to me here in California. And today we're going to discuss uh, distributism. Is it a, a third way or is it a wrong way? And um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we touched on this when we spoke last time. Yeah. And this is something that, um, a, an idea at least, that appeals to a lot of Catholics and actually a lot of um, traditional and pious believing Catholics. I mean, I'm using the, that, those words in a positive sense that yeah. people, genuine Catholics who have faith, Mm-hmm. Um, and want to uphold the faith are attracted to distributism. So it's something that's worth cons- considering. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps, Father, we could just begin if you just describe to us uh, what uh, what it is. Uh, do mention as well. I mean, you talk a little bit about your history. I remember you saying last week you, you used to be one. So yeah. refer to that, and then. So just set the scene for us before we go into the detail of the analysis of it. Well, well first, um, I, I will say I, I, I became a Catholic about 15 years ago, 15 or 16 years ago, when I was a, a student in college, I became Catholic and I was studying the Catholic faith and just, just uh, um, and I, uh, for a number of years, would have described myself as a distributist simply because my own, my own personal conversion was very influenced by the work of G.K. Chesterton, um, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. I loved the, the social and historical commentary of Hilaire Belloc, yeah. uh, who also wrote a lot about economic evils. 
um, the, the Catholic faith as translated into the economic sphere. So I would have described myself as a distributist. And I was, I was very uh, attracted to distributism. Um, and basically, the attraction to distributism uh, is first and foremost, uh, a, 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 I can say from, from my own experience, distributism is fundamentally, they're trying to preserve a good thing. Uh, what, they're, what they're attracted to is the dignity of the human person, the dignity of the individual, and the freedom of the individual from coercive large power. Okay. That's the important thing that, uh, that uh, at least attracted me to distributism. Uh, this idea that the individual is to be, uh, is to have autonomous, free choice and be the governor and the agent of his own, of his own destiny in the economic sphere. And that the enemy, the great enemies of individual freedom, individual autonomy are big government and big business. Right. So both of these big government and big business are symmetrical powers. They're symmetrical evils that are both uh, attacking the little guy. They are okay. both destroying the common man's ability to, to have uh, uh, freedom over his own destiny, freedom over his own family, his own community. Uh, both of these big powers are alienating the common man from his community, or alienating the common man from his own work, from his own community, and from the ability of him to, to uh, determine the destiny of his own community. That's a very powerful idea, because this is good. This is good. What the distributors are trying to preserve is something that is so good. Mm. Um, and I was also very attracted to distributism because distributism was very sensitive to the fact that modern technology, uh, modern technological achievements, uh, any, any, any one of the stages that society has gone through since the industrial revolution, industrial production, um, industrial production on a massive scale brought about and made possible by technology. They're very sensitive to the fact that this alienates the person from the land alienates individual, uh, individual persons from their own personal communities, their own smaller communities. Um, and, and most of all, uh, it has the power to alienate individuals from their work, from the work, mm. because they're producing a work that is mass produced. They're producing products that are um, produced on a grand scale and then shipped off to places that are completely alien to the local person in his community. Uh, and that is a, that, that was attractive to me. That was attractive to me as we can, as you can clearly imagine. Mm. An another thing that uh, attracted me to distributism was this notion, and it was all over, all over the place, was that somehow free market capitalism has been condemned by the Catholic Church. When I became, free market capitalism was condemned. Uh, you cannot be a Catholic and be in favor of uh, free market capitalism. Mm. Now, as we, as we comb the writings of, of the popes and the, the, the magisterium of the Catholic Church regarding uh, Catholic social teaching, regarding economics, there rarely is a very clear understanding of what capitalism even is. Uh, 
there's not a, uh, a clear expression uh, or definition of this capitalism that appears to be condemned. So what exactly is condemned? Is the price system condemned? <laughs> is yeah. is, is uh, uh, the, the forces of supply and demand, are these condemned? What exactly is the church condemning? There have been times when popes like uh, Pope uh, Pius XI, uh, and even Pope John Paul II in Laborum Exercens, uh, does venture to put some kind of flesh on this word capitalism uh, and say what would not be healthy for society, what, what we can condemn, like uh, uh, the, the a greedy hoarding, a greedy hoarding, hoarding of resources would certainly be condemned, something like that. But because I was under the impression that free market capitalism was, was an intrinsic evil condemned by the church, I was driven then to distributism. And, and you're saying that it, 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 in fact, it hasn't been condemned by the church. Well, certainly a free market has not been condemned. By yeah. Actually, a free market, a free and open economy where individuals are free to, to choose and engage in voluntary transactions has certainly been encouraged. This is, what the, this is the idea that the popes have, have upheld, but then this is also tacked to this, this Weasley word, capitalism. Yeah. Weasley word, uh, capitalism, which nobody can, nobody, everybody has a different definition. Certainly the people who condemn capitalism have a very pejorative definition of capitalism. Yes. Find capitalism in the most worst way possible. And then somebody like myself who would be in favor of, of the, the value of the free market would be in favor of a free economy, would simply define capitalism in the most extreme, most, most wide sense possible. Uh, but when, I, when we talk about the, uh, condemning capitalism, I don't even know what is, what these people claim is condemned by the church. Is supply yes. and demand condemned? Is the price system <laughs> what, what is condemned? How, can, right. how does the church condemn the price system? Um, so that was my confusion for many years. It was my confusion for many years. Uh, but when I, when I just kind of uncritically accepted this maxim that capitalism is condemned. This, this is something that I come across a great deal, is that I often find that with the mention of this word, we have two people talking past each other. Exactly. That, that, um, that, that the person who is happy to call themselves a capitalist is interested, certainly in the Catholic context, most of the people I know, Presbyterians like that, mm -hmm. um, in what... Uh, people such as John Paul II advocated and he said because he's aware of what you're describing so yeah. maybe it might be appropriate to call this a free economy so mm -hmm. it's one where there's uh, free exchange of goods and services yeah. where and freedom properly understood so we're talking about the Catholic understanding of freedom which has both a lack of constraint but also a good a proper the fullest freedom is with the proper understanding of the ends to which we use it exactly. um, and um, yes yeah, so, and, and a good uh, system of justice which we talked about last time um, and, and when I say that to when I have conversations with people I say I don't know I don't know anybody who, who calls themselves a capitalist who is not in favor of those things actually yeah. I have I've never heard any capitalists say they're against those things I've heard plenty condemn the sort of capitalism which he uh, also condemned, which uh, the, the derogatory term for the people who like capitalism is crony capitalism. Yes. Which, yes. which, is, uh, which brings big business and government into partnership again, which in a way brings us back to where 
nicely takes us back to your flow of talk. So why did you, why did you continue then with the, this, this idea of distributism? Well, th and th this is the insight that I think distributists, the insight that I, I, I really think we can attribute to distributists. And writers like Chesterton and Bella, who kind of coined the term distributism, is that the the oftentimes we hear the phrase "small is beautiful," small yes. is beautiful, small economies, small business is beautiful, and this is true. They recognize, and their insight is that as institutions grow larger and larger and larger, um, the power. That they, ex that they exert over individual choice becomes more and more coercive and more and more corruptive of, of culture and individuals and more and more and more uh, uh, compromising to individual freedom, individual freedom. Uh, and there, were, there was a, a great awareness on the part of both Chesterton and Belloc and as, as businesses got larger and larger and larger, there was a type of cronyism or collusion that takes place between big business and big government so that the two start working together. Uh, government starts regulating business. And since government regulates business, business has no choice but to, in a sense, bully back, bully back and lobby business, lobby government, lobby big government in order to create uh, more and more regulation that does not help small business, but always only helps the large guy. Yeah, helps the large business. So there's a kind of there's a mutual bullying that goes on. Uh, and the point here is that even if it is a, a constraint upon big business, mm -hmm. it, it's it's usually it's just an irritation. It's at that level. But the same constraint can stop small businesses even getting into the market or starting, and can put small businesses out of business because of the cost of implementing it. The marginal cost of most government regulation on business is easily absorbed by the large guy, is easily yeah. absorbed by large business. It's precisely small business that, that must have the freedom and wiggle room to, be, to, to, to not have government on their back, to not have regulation. Um, excessive government regulation on business virtually always um, drowns out the small business. Drowns out the small business. But this, this collusion that goes back and forth between big business and big government uh, was exactly what um, guys like Chesterton and Belloc were sensitive to. Chesterton called these two powers Hudge and Dudge. Hudge and Dudge, big government and big business. And then he was right in saying that um, for the small clerk, the small clerk that works for the big corporation, or the small clerk that works for the government bureaucrat is in the same situation. They equally have no freedom over their, their life. They are equally at the mercy of powers that are, uh, are beyond their control. Mm. To a certain extent, this is true. This is, this is true, but the distributist makes an error because a distributist does see the power of government and the power of business as symmetrical powers. Yes. Whether the same type of power, and that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Government has the type of power that it does, the power to enforce, to enact law, the power to enforce law, the power to punish those institutions or, or parties that, that violate law. The government has this type of power 
precisely because it is in charge of the common good. And it's in charge of establishing and creating and protecting those conditions within which authentic human freedom can actually take place. Right. That, you know, freedom can take place. Business, big business, no matter how large business gets, never has this type of coercive power. Let's um, say Amazon, Walmart. Walmart, yeah. no matter how large Walmart gets, no matter how it might seem to us that we have no choice but to shop at Walmart for the cheap goods that they provide, Walmart can never have a standing army. <laughs> you know, Walmart yeah. does not have tanks in the back of the shop that, that, are, that are prepared to enforce their laws. It doesn't work that way. Walmart, as a business, cannot uh, impose laws or rules on society that, that, that citizens, free citizens have to abide by. There's a different type of power. So no matter how large business gets, it never has the coercive power of government. So the, the response to that might be, because Walmart is the, the great flagship of the, yeah. the sort of what is bad, should we say, yeah, yeah. in the yeah. eyes of distributors. It always comes up. Mm -hmm. My sort of joking definition of a distributist, and this is my negative prejudice coming out, is that a, a distributist is someone who hates Walmart and keeps chickens in their backyard and thinks <laughs> that everyone else should do the same. And I, I can't... Uh, I say that because I can't think of what else they're in favour of. But the, mm. one thing that they, they, that just when I talk to distributors, they know they hate Walmart usually, yeah. even yeah. to the point of recommending that people. It's a moral um, cho choice that is bad, a bad moral choice to go and uh, actually buy things there. I've heard people say that. That's right. Uh, Chesterton would say the same. Uh, okay, so the the response to that is well, they may not have quite the same sort of power, um, and Perhaps we'll acknowledge that point of crony capitalism. If, the, if, the, if they've got the government on that side, okay, maybe I'll concede that point. I hadn't thought of that. That's, we'll acknowledge that. But the sheer economy of scale that is allowed by Walmart effectively keeps others out of, out of the market and bullies, in a different sort of way, those small players out of business. Um, do you have a, a thought about that at all? Mm -hmm. Well, to a certain extent, we, we can say that this is, to a certain extent, this is true. To a okay. certain extent, as, as, uh, as let's say, any, any business, business A, whether it's Walmart or Amazon, or whoever the token bad guy is, as these businesses get larger, um, as the businesses get larger, there, might, there will be smaller companies that are, are driven out of the market or that simply can't compete. In a truly free market, what generally happens is that the small players are not simply driven out of the market. What happens generally is that the small players simply are able and have the freedom to find substitutes, have the freedom to create substitutes, or they also have the freedom to innovate new substitutes that can take the place of, uh, of products that, uh, uh, products that uh, con consumers feel that they need or for which they feel compelled to go to the big guy. Uh, in, a, in, a true, in a truly free market, there's also, and the most important part of free exchange is that it allows for innovation to create um, valuable, and, and valuable and effective and cheap substitutes. Yes, and this, of course, doesn't deny the fact that in that there is a transitionary period in that you have the effect of Walmart moving in 
uh, and perhaps some businesses struggling, some going out of business as a result of that. Um, and that is a personal tragedy for everybody who suffers. Um, what it doesn't take into account is on the other side, and this is a, it's this uh, what you might call dynamism of, of the, the market is one thing which is unsettling for some people. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't take into account is the positive impact of um, many, many people, the consumers, having cheaper goods. Because we don't know where ultimately they, the, the money that they save, where they direct that. Mm -hmm. um, does the, is, the, is it going into just buying more and people getting fatter, so to speak, or is it being uh, some of it will be spent on uh, investment, more jobs of a different different nature, yeah. um, and the overall effect? I don't think it's clear that the overall effect is negative. The other thing is that um, there is this belief that the sort of jobs that Walmart offers are uh, low quality, mm -hmm. uh, almost necessarily exploitative. Yeah. Um, I, I, I make one point before I'll sort of throw that back at you, but it always occurs to me, I, I, I don't know what people in a small hardware shop are paid. Yeah. Uh, the, the business owner will be doing quite nicely, one assumes, if it's a viable business. But um, I imagine those that are uh, working there are probably paid something similar to what a, a Walmart uh, worker is. They're not going to be highly paid, certainly. They're likely to be young people, high school people doing a job in, the, you know, in, the, you know, in their time off, this sort of thing. Um, so it's not clear to me that it that, that it's automatically means that you have low paid jobs replacing high paid jobs, actually. But what about this point of the um, exploitation of low paid workers that, that um, is, Walmart is introducing when it moves into an area? Well, exploitation is the, that's kind of the buzzword. That is for, for exploiting workers, distributists would call them. Uh, work wage slavery so where is reduced but his labor hours at a wage uh, which uh, which places the person at the at the mercy at the mercy of an employer uh, uh, with with regards to to what your depends on depends on the situation you're right it's this it's not necessarily true that the good jobs are being driven out, and then the small jobs, are, or or the small low low paying jobs, are are taking their place. It's not necessarily the case. Um, it's not necessarily the case. So I don't I don't I don't know in any particular case, like with Walmart, I don't know how much uh, a Walmart employee is getting paid with in comparison to let's say a hardware shop. Um, So yeah, I don't know in any particular case. I, 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 what I said, what I would say in gen, in in general, is that uh, employees are also far better off, are far better off when they have the ability to freely sell their labor to uh, to agents in the market. Uh, certainly, if a place like Walmart or Amazon had a monopoly. Uh, had a monopoly on on selling on on 
providing labor. This would, this would create an evil. But rarely in a truly free market does that happen. Rarely <coughs> in a situation where laborers have no other option but to sell their labor to the big guy. And the, the, some would say, well, they have very little choice. Uh, my response to that would be, well, how do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. Is it to stop Walmart coming in, or is it to uh, aim for a, a freer situation? Um, right. And uh, in other words, encourage uh, the, the introduction of other jobs. So, and that would force then Walmart to pay more. Um, the other thing is this idea of a monopoly um, that uh, I'm not convinced that it's necessarily always bad, um, provided there is free entry to the market. If, if the, the, um, somebody is keeping competitors out because nobody is able to off, offer um, the service or the good more cheaply or mm -hmm. of better quality, even in a niche way, yeah. um, but that is the only barrier to the market, then I would say that's a legitimate monopoly. Yeah, uh, that that, um, that still potentially people could enter. But if yes. somebody is good at doing what they're doing and they put other people out of business because they offer better services to the consumer, mm -hmm. that is legitimate, I would say. I um, would say, well, that shouldn't be prevented by force. Yes, I agree. You know, helping consumers, helping consumers, uh, give, giving, giving people, giving uh, in your community, Back to goods and services should never, never be snuffed out by coercive force, whether it be by, by, government, by government regulation. What must never be snuffed out by government regulation is the ability for players to enter freely into the market, for the ability uh, for, for competitors to enter. And what happens with the big company when government steps in and starts to regulate is they genuinely, generally, generally regulate the small guys out of the market. Yeah. And if small guys are regulated out of the market, there will not be a free market of labor. And if the small guys are regulated out of the market, the little guy, the, the, the man or woman on the street has no choice but to sell his labor to the big guy. Right, and this brings us to um, the, the, the point here that while um, the situation may not be perfect. We, we pointed out certain difficulties, you know, the, this classic case of Walmart moving in. There is, a, 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 at least in the short term, even in the perfect situation, a detrimental effect on some people, mm -hmm. uh, quite likely. Yeah. Um, but the answer, the question is, what is going to be, what is better than this? <laughs> what, what, what do you do about it? How do you deal with the situation? As we've heard, regulating it, stopping people doing it, is, is worse, creates a worse situation. Um, the, the answer, it seems to me, is, is freedom. Yes, this is ultimately, David, why I, in my own personal life, my own personal journey through understanding these, these concepts, trying to, uh, I, I eventually pulled away from distributism and just says, no, I'm in favor of a free market economy. You call that capitalism, that's fine, whatever label you want to give it. It's simply because I realized that the distributors, although they're very sensitive to certain evils in the economy, they have no solution as to how to solve these evils that does not somehow incorporate a parallel evil. 
or an even greater evil of the coercive force of government stepping in is to regulate death, regulate to an inch of its life so that we can supposedly protect the pristine, uh, uh, the pristine local smaller communities that, that we see big business as destroying. And the distributists, even along with socialists and communists, have the same attitude towards this coercive power of government, that we're going to bring government in to regulate big business. And we're gonna bring government in to regulate business so that once we get the right regulations, not all these bad regulations that we've had in the past, just the right ones, once we get the right regulations and then everything will be fine. Well, no, this is, this is a complete deception. It's a deception. We, uh, even the right regulations, whatever that might mean, have unintended consequences. That e economists for, for now a century and a half have been, have been drawing out for us. Does yeah. that make sense? Well, yes, and this um, leads me to something that I've seen uh, in some distributors that I, I've uh, engaged with is a tendency for, for all the fact that they are interested in freedom to an authoritarian approach. Exactly. And some end up doing this by actually distorting the meaning of freedom. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but in a, in a different way to, to many modern, other modern people do, many secular people do. So the, in my mind, there are two components of freedom. One, as I said, is the lack of constraint. Um, mm -hmm. And the other is a full knowledge of what is good. So in other words, we can't exercise that freedom well unless we understand what our end is, mm -hmm. uh, or tell us what, what our purpose is, and, and we have the capacity to do what is the practical, practicable best. Um, but the, um, the people in the secular world very often, the, the sort of generalized picture is of people who focus only on lack of constraint, which is license. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the alternative is not to eliminate lack of constraint and make people do what we think is right. Um, and even if it's the teaching of the church, God gives people free will, so we should respect that. Um, and now, the, 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 the grey area, of course, is where one person interferes with the, the freedom of somebody else, and then that's where the judicial system comes in. And that's always going to be a tension, a slight tension there, because well, it this, is, this is one of the insights of, of classical liberalism. And I believe it comes, it, it emerges from the Christian tradition. One of the insights is, is, that, is that under law, under law, human, human beings must be treated equally under law. Uh, un, uh, under law. But this precisely gives human beings the, the freedom, the sphere of freedom in society within which they can live out their own striving for their own perfection, their own, uh, their own telos. Right. And the, um, the, the response that might be given by the Catholic who wishes to uh, make people do what is right mm -hmm. is uh, Aristotle. They would say, well, if you force people to do what is right, eventually they come to love it. And so it's justified. Mm -hmm. But the response to that, and I heard, I let you give that, it comes from St. Thomas, doesn't it? The, the, that's, the law is made for most people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Law. Law. Um, yeah. Law is made for most people. That's a huge, <laughs> huge topic. Yeah. 
the, the, the nature of, of law and coercive power. And law, law, law is established to create virtue. Law is established to engender virtue yes. in people and to, to, direct, to direct behavior. But one of the, one, one of the uh, features uh, of law that St. Thomas, uh, Augustine, they all recognize is that not all evils can be pros uh, prescribed by law. Yes. Not all evils in society can be snuffed out by human positive law. If we try to, to render illegal all human evils in society through positive law, what this is going to do is actually create a situation where there's, less, where there's more evil. It's going to create a situation where the conditions for people to act, to live out their freedom and to live out their goodness are, are, uh, are constrained. Uh, and it, you're going to snuff out more good uh, and a, a classic example of that would be the temperance movement, I always, I always think, where it ended up creating disrespect for the police, for the law, for the, uh, uh, what, what, uh, it's not even clear that it's morally right anyway, but we right. could see the point there, that it had a detrimental effect, it was disastrous. It's a very detrimental effect precisely because when we try to prescribe through law all evil, um, even even evils that could never be enforced, laws that could never be enforced, uh, then what we do is we we actually weaken the power of all law in society. We weaken the power of positive law. Uh, law, law becomes a mere suggestion for for uh, for citizens uh, rather than rather than being what it truly is, which is law. Yeah. All right. So we can come come back to this, I, what, what I'd like to do is think about also the sort of um, cultural sensibilities. Because this, I, I feel this is driving distributors a great deal as well, just as something that I'm aware of, because I, I'm interested in culture and the, what the, the, the beauty of the, our surroundings. And I share, I think, with what I hear a lot of distributors saying, um, this mistrust of whatever is producing the modern culture yeah. Uh, is producing a lot of ugliness. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, can you relate any of that to your personal experience, maybe? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would say, you know, industrial, industrial mass production is ugly. Industrial mass production is ugly, made possible by all this technology we have. There's an ugliness to it. There's an aesthetic that's not, that's not pleasing. And because the aesthetic is not pleasing, this must be, this must be an evil. You know, what I, you know what I mean? It must be an evil because it's just a, and I would say this is just a, simply a, a great lack of imagination for the first part. On the, on the, yeah. on the just simply a lack of imagination. We say uh, uh, industrial production is ugly, but at the same time, the, 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 the quality of life, the, 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 the quality of life that it makes possible for so many thousands and millions of people in the world, that's also a beautiful thing. That's also beautiful. Uh, yes, it's it's there's a certain there's a certain ugliness to to mass production, uh, but the fact that men, women, and children all over the world are able to have access to better, greater water, greater health care, um, more food through mass production, mass farming, this is also a beautiful thing. Yes. My, my response to this, actually, is, um, is to say that I agree that when we... By the way, if you could stop clicking your pen, we can hear that on the... Okay, you, okay uh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that's right. Um, so 
it is that while certainly um, we look at industry, everybody is aware that the industrial estate is an ugly, ugly place. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say is it actually doesn't need to be. It's not intrinsic to industry. No. But the, the, and what is happening is that the, the forces that restrict freedom um, are, uh, are holding sway here. And where you see ugliness um, in even what is predominantly, in many ways, a beautiful thing, certainly the idea of what is emerging from it, um, that the fault ultimately lies with the, the, the source and the greatest force for the, for the generation of a beautiful culture. And that's us. <laughs> it's the liturgy. It's the church. It, it, the, it's, it's the, um, this is why um, this liturgical reform that um, has been going alongside the rise of the, the industrialization, shall we say, since the early 19th century, we're still in that process. Some of it has been done very badly, as we know. And so that is not helping. I, I freely can see that. But nevertheless, um, what we need to strive for is a, is a Catholic culture which can inform and modify and add to all those beautiful and good things that you're describing. And it, it's not until we do that, and this begins with liturgical renewal and then artistic and architectural musical renewal, shall we say, in harmony with what is right liturgical practice. Then you have the, the driving force for something which t- touches every aspect of human life. Um, and I always think, I have my sort of stock arguments against mass production, for example. The, the, if you go back to the 18th century, which still there were some elements, of, of more elements for Christian cultures that were intrinsic to what was going on, the factories that were made in those days, I'm not, saying they were pleasant places to work in by modern standards, mm-hmm. but they are world heritage sites because of their beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, the things they produced, such as Wedgwood pottery, are sought after antiques, and they were, they were produced in factories mm-hmm. in what at the time was called the Black Country in Britain, because it was, there was so much sort around. Um, and so it doesn't need to be the case that automatically mass production and industrialization engenders um, a sort of sameness and sterile product. Right. It comes down to the design. And mm-hmm. for all that, I still say that I'd rather have mass production, even as it is now, than relying on craftsmen, because they simply couldn't supply sufficient of most of the things that we need to give people a good life. Um, so I'm not interested in going back. I don't have this um, nostalgia for a situation which really cannot help us now. Um, I think the answer is to add to what we have, which is good in many ways and make it better. Um, And I think that many distributors have this misplaced nostalgia. Um, There's a misplaced nostalgia. There's a a fear. There's a fear that the modern modern world has gotten so ugly that we are... by necessity, we must go backwards. We must go back to a time when it was right, right? Mm. Now, first of all, that's yes. a failure of, the man, of imagination. There was never a time when everything was right. It was never a, there was never a panacea in the past that now we can simply go back to. That's always, uh, that's always a deception. Um, it, it's, it's just very, very naive thinking. But also, you're right. There's nothing intrinsically ugly about mass production. There's nothing intrinsically ugly 
about using technology or utilizing technology to make greater use of natural resources. In fact, there is a beauty to that. There's a beauty to using technology yes, I agree. to expand the use of resources, of, uh, to, to make, to make the, the raw materials of the world uh, more beneficial to more individuals. There's a beauty to that too. Um, and oftentimes the distributists uh, or, or the distributists or, or those of the ilk have this reaction to technology that technology alienates us from, from the earth, from the world. Yes. And this is just as general, let me give you an example of generally what, what they mean. You know, um, you know, 5,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, if um, man wanted a, a pot of, of hot water, pot of hot water, he would have to create a, create a, a clay pot out of the soil, walk down to the river, get water with his clay pot, bring the clay pot back, heat the clay pot, up on on a, on on a fire on a fire and have his water, you know. Every stage of that process is completely transparent to that man. There's no mystery there. He is completely responsible for every stage of that process, and there's no information in that process that is that doesn't come directly from that man's head, right? Mm. Now, in the modern industrialized, you know, uh, technology-driven world, if I want a pot of hot water. What do I do? I turn on the sink, I turn on the faucet, the hot water faucet, and I fill up a pot that I purchased at the store with hot water, right? Yeah. Now, the simple act of turning on a faucet and getting hot water automatically employs the expertise and the information of thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the economy. There had to be somebody to manufacture the faucet there has to be uh, a, a hot water, the, a hot water generator somewhere. Somebody to manufacture the hot water generator. Somebody to create the pipes that brought the piping into my home. Somebody to create the pot that I use. So every part of this process is now not transparent to me. I'm able to use the expertise and the information of thousands of agents in the economy to simply get that one pot of hot water. The simple action of of turning on the faucet and getting hot water is now something that's far more accessible to me, but at the same time, I am able to use the labor and the information of thousands of other people. So in one sense, we can say that technology has separated me from the land, mm. right? In one sense, it's separated me from the land, but in another sense, the modern technological world has connected me to a network of players, a network of people with expertise that I, that I don't have. But even though I don't have that expertise, I don't have the information. I don't have all the information at my disposal that's used to turn on the hot water faucet. I'm able to use that information because I'm connected to a market. I'm connected to a, 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 to an, a, a, a whole network of people that are all able to make my life possible. Mm. So in a certain sense, yes, technology alienates us from the world, alienates us from the land, but in another sense, technology unites us to other people. And there's also a beauty there. <coughs> Which um, brings us nicely to this idea of chickens in the backyard. Yeah. The, the, um, th this feeling that we are separated from the land. And I think 
uh, again, there's something to this. That there, and I think it's stronger in the U.S. actually because of the way that the laws of uh, ownership are. But uh, the, from where, as compared with where I am in the U.K., and I'll explain that in a moment. But um, this feeling that we have to be growing things in order that, that this comes from Leo the Thirteenth, I, th I think. Mm -hmm. that, that, it's natural to man to work the land. Um, now, I've got a few comments. So do you have anything to say about that? Um, oh, do, uh, do you yeah. keep chickens, for example? Well, no, I, I, as, a, as a religious, I don't own chickens. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I live in, in many ways. I get my food like, like your average person does in our, in our culture. Um, we just make, make use of the, of the grocery store. Yeah. It's certainly natural for man to work the land because the land, or I was saying the earth, is precisely uh, that set of raw materials that God has given to the human person to use to, to satisfy our needs. And the church has always, has always insisted there's a type of universal destination of all goods. All the goods of the earth are destined for a universal destination. And when we say it's man's duty to work the land, a man by nature works the land, we, we, we simply can't, can't be stuck in, in contracting this down to farming. This is a yes. contraction. This is a, we can't yes. say that, that working the land or taking the natural resources of the world and rendering them more useful to society necessitates that we farm. No, this is a failure of the imagination to see that man cultivating the garden or, or man realizing his primordial vocation to, to work the garden of the world and render the natural gifts of the world useful to his fellow man is restricted to something like agriculture. Technology is one of the ways that we primarily do this. The use of technology, the creation of greater and greater technologies that in, in greater ways, this has, this has rendered the whole this has rendered the modern world possible. Yes, and I agree with you. It is a contraction. And actually, it's not what Leo XIII said. He said explicitly it's not limited to simply production of goods for food or something like, mm -hmm. like that. I can't remember the exact phrasing. So where I go is, I, I, it's beautiful what you said, uh, that technology comes under that umbrella. But yeah. what I say is that um, it's part of the American response, particularly. It's, it's not... Um, what I see in Europe, for example, um, that, that it always is about productive use of the land. When people, the very phrase, if you say I'm planting a garden, in America, the assumption is that you're planting vegetables, things to eat. In Britain, they think flowers. Um, and they think the, something for the beauty of it. Um, and that is the great tradition in Britain, is flower gardens. And it's not a, a feminine thing. It's a, I've, talked, I've spoken about this in other podcasts that, that Adam was a gardener. Christ was, mis as the new Adam, was mistaken as the gardener. This is, this is a masculine calling as much as a feminine, um, or as much for men as it is for women. And so anybody, if they, ha if they feel this desire to propagate the land, can grow flowers. Mm. Anybody can do this. And actually, given that the availability of goods um, and the cheapness of them by other means, which I have no qualms about going down to the supermarket buying chickens, uh, especially if they're already cooked, fantastic, saves me the effort. 
um, <laughs> and and eggs as well, um, then um, what 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 is a better thing for me to do? I think to grow a garden for the beauty of it and for the contemplation of it. This is the the Mary as opposed to the Martha. Both are necessary, but the contemplative aspect of the garden is very often neglected. I think over here particularly. That's it. Um, and the other thing is that um, in Britain, coming out of, and, and this again, this is something that um, in many ways I have more in common with the sort of hippie culture, which is left, which comes from around here. And it's amazing how many similarities there are with hippie culture and many good approaches to, to the environment and to community. What they lack is, um, is the leaven of, of God, basically, to... to bind it um, and, and give it its true end but um, that in I'm a, I'm a great hiker I love walking we, we go on hikes yeah. together and um, it wouldn't be possible for me to, to buy sufficient land to have a 10 mile walk anywhere mm -hmm. <laughs> and never mind the sort of variety that I do so how can I go hiking well the answer is that other people who own land allow me to walk um, yeah. on the understanding that um, I respect the land. Yeah. And so in America, that tends to be usually the government. Yeah. Yeah. And they put areas aside for walking. Mm -hmm. In Britain, the tradition is that landowners allow people, they, they call it public rights away. Eventually it was brought into law because it, was being, it wasn't being respected by the landowners. They were trying to stop it. Uh, and, uh, but nevertheless, for centuries, and it goes back to medieval times when people had to have access to that strip of land, that they had to walk across somebody else's land to get to their own. Mm. And so they were given this pub, this right of way. And that then changed into something that whereby people walked across other people's land and provided they respected it and stuck to the footpath, um, they were allowed to do so. So those novels, you know, the Jane Austen novels, where they walked to the neighbouring house they're going across farmers lands and other people's lands and it was just taken for granted that they could do so now this to me is a classic example of the proper understanding of the um not just the rights of private property but the privileges and how we understand that if we have a privilege of ownership of land there are ways in which we can um accord uh certain uh, freedoms to people who don't own it own it um, mm -hmm. but it needs this understanding from both parties that yeah. I'm not going to go onto that land steal the crops and shoot the, everything that I see in sight for example I'm going to respect what's there so it needs this hierarchical understanding of society that is um, in in harmony with if you like the with the church in the, as the sort of yeah. model of hierarchy if you like yeah, the right to private property is still under a rule of law. It's, it's under a rule of law, and that rule of law actually renders the property more useful to more agents in society. Yes. It renders, it renders the, the private property, even though it's private, and actually because it's private, actually becomes useful to more people. Yes. Whereas, and this, this actually is a segue, the, the, the distributists, the distributists have a, a really very good insight in right here, right here is they, the, the key to distributism 
is understanding the dignity of private property. Yes. Private property is key to distributism because they realize that uh, the ability of the, hum the, the of human person to, ha to, to, to obtain, to use, and dispose of his own private property is the key to his freedom. Now, this has also been, uh, this, this has been a, a leitmotif of the popes throughout the encyclicals of, uh, of the Catholic Church about, about private property, private property, private property is fundamental to Catholic social teaching. Um, and why, and why is that? It's because private property allows, uh, allows individuals to make better use of their goods, to make better use of the land, mm. right? Like, like what you're saying, it's, the, it's the, precisely the private property and the private property rights uh, guided under law are, are um, allowing individuals to make, uh, to, 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 to render the goods in their ownership useful to other people around them. Yes, and, and so, for example, I have no desire whatsoever to, um, to be a farmer. Um, I love farmland, and I can go out into it, and I can see cows, I can see sheep. One of the things that I, I used to do in Britain is because um, there, are, there is land around here, in, in this part of the world, near in the East Bay, um, that where you have that sort of access, and that has been done by um, private ownership of trusts and some companies who then lease the land, I, th I think this is the model, to farmers on the condition that they respect these footpaths. And so it, it, it is used for agriculture, it's used well, um, and so you can get out. And I think there is a great beauty to the landscape when man is using it for what it ought to be. And some landscape ought to be pasture land or farmland or for crops. And when that is done in that way, that is beautiful. That is what the European countryside looks like. That's why it looks like that. There is no wilderness there. And that's, I feel a frustration if I can't get out into the land. I don't want to farm, but I love to go and see it being done. I can grow plants and flowers, however small a space I have, I can at least have a plant pot. Um, and so that desire to have a connection with and see the process is going on, which I think is intrinsic to man. And Leo XIII points this out. It's part of every individual's natural desire, not just for mankind as a whole. We, we want a sense of a participation in this. That it's actually the private ownership and a proper understanding of that which, which gives people the opportunity to do that, I believe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And private ownership is key. And this is also another attraction that, that Catholics have to distributism. Distributists recognize the importance of private ownership. Now, what a distributist, where they would make the error is, is, and this is where distributism actually gets its name, David. Distributism gets its name from the, uh, the insistence that private ownership be widely distributed. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the wide distribution of private property. Uh, in a free society, David, in a truly free society, people will be property owners, but everybody doesn't have to be a property owner. Everybody <laughs> doesn't have to be a property owner. I, for example, I have a vow of poverty. I have freely given up my right to own property. It's something that I've chosen. I have a right to do that. Other people choose of their volition 
to not be property owners. They choose to actually, they, they feel that it's a better use of their skills to work for property owners. Yes. You know, to be a doctor, let's say a, a carpenter. Carpenter wants to work for a property owner. There's nothing wrong with this. In a free society, in a free and prosperous society, this option will be open to individuals. And there's nothing wrong there. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no degradation of the dignity, let's say, of a worker simply because he's working on someone else's property. There's no uh, intrinsic alienation there to the worker because he's working with someone else's property or working through someone else's capital. Uh, that's a Marxist view, isn't it? That there it's is. Deeply Marxist, yes. yes. It is, it's it's a, the notion of Marxist alienation. And this actually can be a subject maybe of even further, further podcasts that we do oh, in the okay. future. Is okay. that distributists and Marxists have the same enemy. And nothing unites, nothing unites people more than having a common enemy. So even though true distributism in the Chestertonian, Belakian sense, and communism are completely opposite. Mm -hmm. In the modern world, I've even seen this on a lot of blogs, distributists end up adopting a lot of the rhetoric of Marxists, sometimes even adopting the very logic of, of Marxism because, and I think the, inter, the interconnection is that they have the same attitude towards coercive power. You know, the same, the same kind of bully attitude towards we're gonna use the power of the state to enforce, to force people to do what is right. Yeah. Uh, and this is why there is, an, there is a connection that I have seen uh, between modern, very contemporary Catholics who call themselves distributists and Marxist ways of thinking. Right. Um, is there anything else we, we need to cover? I think, is there anything? Well, I don't know. We've talked, we've talked about, a, a, certainly we've talked about a lot. Talked about a lot. Like I say, I, in my own thinking, owe a lot to the distributors for helping me a lot in my early days, in my early Catholic days of uh, understanding Catholic social teaching. Although I do, so I, I, I really appreciate distributists uh, and I appreciate their sensitivity to certain evils in society. I think they are blind to the fact that oftentimes they're, they're uh, the paternalistic way in which they want to enforce this kind of pristine aesthetic version of society is an evil. That's, that reminds me actually, the final point, I, there was um, someone who used to come and teach at when I was at Thomas More College called Harry Verizon, who was an mm -hmm. economist um, from uh, a University of Detroit, I, I think, uh, the Catholic mm -hmm. University, the Jesuit University. Uh, he ran the master's program there. He was an Austrian economist. Okay. And he wrote a book, uh, a textbook called It Doesn't Have to Be This Way. He always used to say, I am, I am a distributist. I believe in uh, distribution of goods. But he felt that the, be the, the best way to do that and to do it most equitably actually is through the free market, where you have just the system we're, we're describing. And it's so a, a, a large business or somebody having a greater concentration of ownership is not in itself bad. Then it might be natural for some people to do that because actually they're able to use those resources better. And even if it is, who's to decide what the right distribution is? That's the problem. And we always end, come back to the situation that um, when you have anything that um, imposes something and restricts freedom, uh, the, the chances are it's going to be worse than something that just protects freedom and allows the, the, the whatever comes up to emerge naturally. Um, and so, 
Um, I would urge distributors, I, I hope you don't feel we've been too negative and rude to mm. you, um, have a think about the, 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 play, the, the goals you're looking for and how the free economy, let's, mm. let's avoid that word capitalism if you wish yeah. to, yeah. Um, the free economy as described by people such as um, certainly John Paul II and Centesimus yeah. Annus, uh, and is, is distinguished from those other uh, forms of capitalism where you have uh, a restriction of freedom to think yeah. about how they might actually achieve the ends that you're looking for. Uh, certainly, I, I think they do. I think I share the goals that you, sh you have. David, this is ultimately my own personal journey when I realized that the very goods that distributists are trying to preserve <coughs> and promote mm. are, are actually promoted best by a free market economy. Yeah. Are, are the, the, the freedoms of the individual, uh, the greater autonomy, uh, uh, a, a greater incentive to virtue, greater incentive to virtue is actually promoted far more by a free market economy. And this is almost, this is almost undeniable when you look at the history of the 20th century. Well, I would agree. Um, I'll be interested to hear any people have any comments. Um, I look right, forward yeah. to reading those. Um, I think we, we finished there, unless there's anything you need to add. It sounds like we reached a nice conclusion. Um, we're going to continue. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you, Father. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to continue these discussions. Um, and that we've got about four or five planned on issues such as this, on issues of private property, um, and self-interest, um, even an analysis of Marxism, why it's so alluring, mm -hmm. uh, and what, especially in the forms that it exists today. Yeah. Um, and I can't wait to, to cover those subjects too. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you, David. You've been listening to The Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.